What's up, my high vibers? Kid Carson here. High vibers. Does that sound cool? Is that a cool nickname? High vibers. We vibing high. We uh, elevating to that higher frequency. I want to vibe high, baby. So let's let's vibe together. <laughs> We're recording this episode live downtown Vancouver, Canada, in the lobby of the luxurious Paradox Hotel. And of course, that means you can come visit me. Just knock on that glass wall, wave. Anytime you're downtown Vancouver, I'll come and say hi. You might even catch me interviewing someone. In fact, just moments ago, I interviewed an amazing guy. His name is Kip Warner. He's the man behind the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy. It's the group that is suing Bonnie Henry. Kip is a very, very intelligent man. And, and he's really become a hero to so many people, especially those who've been fired due to the mandates, including nurses who in BC, I'm not sure if you know this, have still not been hired back. Okay. All the rest of the, you know, all, all, all the other provinces in the country have rehired their nurses here in BC. Nurses not welcome back to work, even though we're in the middle of like a severe healthcare crisis. It's, it's crazy, man. We are in desperate need of nurses and other healthcare providers. And yet BC just, man, refuses to give these highly trained people their jobs back. <laughs> oh my God, it's crazy. So anyways, last week, the, the court proceedings began here in Vancouver and Kip is here to share with us all that is happening. And please visit my relaunched website, kidcarson.com. My live events are coming across Canada, including a show shortly in Toronto, Calgary, and then coming back to Vancouver. And I'd love to meet you in person again. Get all the info at kidcarson.com. All right, let's jump into it. Meet the amazing Kip Warner. What's up, man? Hey, Kip. Good to see you. Nice to find me. Yeah, I know. It's, I've got so many messages from people saying, you've got to interview Kip. Got to interview Kip. Yes, and Super I've been pump. getting the same. Everyone keeps saying, you got to meet Kid. You got to meet Kid. And I'm just like, we're both busy. We got shit to do. Right? You know, we're in the trenches every day. And like, <laughs> <laughs> What the hell's happening this week? Well, last week, we were in court all day for a very important hearing as part of um, our class action lawsuit. So it's actually a proposed class action, and that hearing was all about um, formalizing the next step so that we can proceed to trial. And we brought a suit against Dr. Bonnie Henry. And the background for that is um, there was a declaration of emergency, as we all know, here in B.C., and subsequent to that, there was a myriad of different public health orders that were predicated on that. And um, there were, as you know, we've all got people in our lives who are affected in different ways by these different public health orders. Um, some people couldn't, the really important things, like they couldn't see a dying loved one. Other people uh, couldn't complete their education. Other people lost their employment. And those are important situations. And then there were sort of maybe not so important, but also affecting people's lives. Like a friend of mine, he couldn't go to a strip club anymore. And, you know, like everyone was affected in different ways. And so each different demographic. Was, I couldn't go to the gym. Couldn't go and to the gym. And now look at me. Right. Yeah. I've never caught up. You so know? Everyone was pissed off in their own way. And you've got all these different demographics, right? And um, we decided, but this was back in, I guess it was, uh, when did we file? I think it was January 2021. So in just a few months before that, uh, I was being lobbied by members of our community to go and do something. I'm, I'm still not clear why me, but it got mm. dumped on me. And so I told people that the only way that you're going to, from my experience in in, uh, in private sector, is that 
when you're dealing with um, large organizations, the only way that you can really get them to change their behavior is not through um, uh, expecting them to do the right thing, but you need to show them that the alternative is if they don't do it, it's going to cost them a lot. Mm. And um, so the only way to do that is through litigation. And um, people obviously tried, you know, writing their MLAs and MPs and writing articles and there were protests. And these are all important things, part of the political process. Um, but, you know, my reading of history is that governments generally don't care about those things uh, unless uh, there's some kind of political consequences to them. And so I figured the only place where we can force them to have a conversation that they don't want to do is through courts. And um, the way we designed our lawsuit was to take into account uh, a number of different political considerations in, in the country. BC is made up of all kinds of different demographics, whole country as the whole world is. It's a mosaic of different types of people, right? And so in the beginning, when we started this, my team was driving me around uh, all over the place, meeting with sort of, uh, I often joke about it, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, we've got all these different tribes, we've got, you know, the dwarfs and the elves and, and the wizards and so on. And I'm meeting with like the leaders of these different demographics, right? And I'm trying to reason with them and come to terms on what we can do for them. And, um, you know, just when you think you've met everybody and discussed everything there is, then the trees start making their demands. And so we had to, the only way to do this was to do it in a nonpartisan uh, way in which it's inclusive for everybody. And rather than ch challenging specific public health orders, which are concerning to specific demographics, they were all predicated on the declaration of an emergency. So uh, our philosophy was to challenge the declaration of an emergency because mm. if you could challenge that, like a, a Jenga tower, it all comes down, you know. And so since that time, there's been various other legal challenges people have brought where, um, you know, if you want to sink a battleship, they've been strafing at the deck, they've been shooting at the conning tower, but we think the best way to deal with this is to hit it below the waterline. Mm. That's the only way to sink the ship. And so that's been our strategy. And, and who are you? to be the guy to, to do this? That's a good question. I'm still trying to figure out why it got dumped <laughs> on me. Um, but uh, yeah, my background's in AI. Uh, I studied at UBC. Um, I've worked quite a bit in the industry and so on. I won't go over you know, my CV. It's a bit of a bore, but people can find that online. Um, in my space, in the software space, it's very litigious. And I think it's not something unique to software it's that um at one point in time it was railroads it was newspapers and it was oil because tech is where the money is that's where there's the most disputes and as a result when you're running a tech company you learn very quickly how to stay out of trouble because it's very easy to get sued for you know privacy breaches and patent infringement and trademarks i mean this they're constantly suing each other in the tech space so mm. Um, if you don't have multi-million dollar budget, then you have to learn this stuff on your own. And you pick up books, you watch, you see other people, colleagues of yours in industry make mistakes, and you adapt. And so I've tried to use what I've learned um, for for the public good. And um, so that knowledge serves me well, but uh, I'm always learning things every day. Before we continue, are we living in a matrix or what? Are you, are you on side with what Elon thinks? Is a one in a billion chance that, that we don't? Live in a simulation? Uh, I, you know, it, there's there's a couple different layers to that question philosophically, but uh, yeah, we we might be, we might be. I don't I don't <laughs> pay too it. much attention to what <laughs> Musk says, but 
Yeah, we, we could be. I mean, the, the type of AI that I work in is, is uh, I'm not doing anything naughty, like spying on people or whatever. Like I, I build, you know, software, the film and entertainment space. And before that, you know, I was working in, in space science and, and um, I'm not building robots to kill people or anything. The, the tech companies like Facebook and Google, you know, I've worked with these companies. They, they don't really have real AI. They have some very fancy algorithms, um, which when you take it apart and you look at it, like the code is very sophisticated and you can have whiteboards filled with, with uh, algorithms. Um, but really these are just symbol manipulation tools mm. and they're not self-aware. They're not sentient. They're not reasoning the way a man would. Um, but those technologies actually do exist, but they're not in the tech space. They're, mm. they're in um, uh, defense industry companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and, uh, um, like sentient type, yeah. Really, yeah. Those oh those are in, in in special projects, but the, the the nerds don't have access to that stuff. I mean, those companies they have their own nerds, but they're they're quasi military, quasi government, but they're not really in the. Uh, I don't want to totally derail the conversation about what we're here to talk about, but nerd with me just for sure. sixty more seconds. What would some of those like Lockheed Martin, these, you know, the sentient level of AI, what type of special projects? Like what's happening? Well, they're they're heavily classified, and even actually, you know, your public officials won't have access to them. They won't have any any idea at all about them. Uh, I mean, I spent time in the military, but I had you know I didn't have a security clearance. I just basically had the normal reliability screening. Everyone in uh, goes, all the officers go through. But um, there are people who who do have access to these programs, and they're called USAPs, unacknowledged special access projects. And they deal with all kinds of things, advanced research in uh, propulsion, in energy generation, medicine, uh, navigation, uh, weapon systems, all kinds of things like that. And um, the technology that you see, like the most cutting edge stuff that comes out at, you know, CES 2022 or 2023, that stuff is already like 20 years behind. Yes. Inside of the defense. I've always thought that. Yeah. Yeah. They're like toys. Once it's in your hand. Once it's an iPhone, it's a toy. It's only we only know about it because it's a mainstream money making toy. Basically, yeah, I, I mean, it's like like a, the example you use is cell phone. It's it's a radio transceiver from 19th century. It's really not that right. sophisticated. Like our whole <laughs> power systems, you know, like a uh, electrical grid system from the 19th century. Um, yeah, and you haven't really seen much um, serious innovation. You've seen improvements on technology, but not radical paradigm shifting things since. Really, I think it is 1950s or 60s. I think it was Peter Thiel, the PayPal guy. He was quoted a while ago saying that you know it still takes the same amount of time to pl- fly from Vancouver, uh, or sorry, from uh, JFK to Heathrow as it did in the 1960s, mm-hmm. right? And right. Today, and so obviously the aircraft have improved, but you're still dealing with you know internal combustion engines. It's it's vintage technology that's been around a very long time. So are people? Uh you know, are the elites teleporting around? What what's uh, what technology is there that's that we're twenty years behind and we can't even imagine it? Most of it, I don't have access yeah. to. If you had to guess, I, I would say that it's a lot more sophisticated than than almost anything you can imagine. People at, at like the Skunk Works and so on have been working on this stuff for a very long time. Um, Crazier than what I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty. I can imagine. Much, I can imagine some crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's. It would be cool if these projects were the ha- in the hands of people that um, cared about you, but they don't. It's mm-hmm. mostly sociopaths. And um, 
unfortunately, that's kind of the state of the world. Right yeah, now. yeah. There is a mourning process that you go through when you yeah. realize that the world is not what you think it is. But you're right in it. Like you are in the front lines. You've been sitting in court all week. You've put together this uh, this Sue Bonnie Henry, which there's a website, right? You brought me a really beautiful bumper sticker. Where is it? It's the last one, <laughs> too, last that we have one. in stock. So I saw it this morning. It's like, you know what? Kids should have that. This is beautiful. Look at that. I have seen these on cars. I love this. The Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy. So this is an organization that you put together. Yes. So we incorporated a nonprofit, mm. uh, charter, bylaws, all of that. Went through all the formal steps. You know, in a nutshell, what happened was the villagers got together at the town square. They had a common grievance. They uh, appointed a shepherd, if you will. Um, yeah, we came up with a plan. We engaged counsel, and we went to the courthouse. And the system allows you to do that. It allows you to do that. It's a question of, of specifically how we went about doing it, which is we use the, a statute called the Class Proceedings Act. So everyone, I think, has heard about class actions. You hear a little bit about them where mm. um, basically... Uh, uh, a bunch of people with a, some common grievance go to the courthouse and sue somebody. They think that uh, something bad has happened to them and they were asking the judge to make things right. And so the class actions are different from uh, normal, if you will, vanilla suits in, in that they seek to achieve three objectives. So these are access to justice, judicial economy, and behavioral modification. So what do I mean by that? Yeah, the example I often use, if someone buys a defective product, um, it's maybe, maybe they spent 50 bucks on it. It's not, and it, it's not worth going to court, spending all that time and money to get a judgment that, you know, the manufacturer of the blender or toaster, whatever it was that you bought makes you whole. And so, um, but if a million people bought that defective product, um, they should have a remedy. And so that access to justice allows all of these people to bring uh, a grievance to the court. Um, the judicial economy is about rather than a million people each filing their own lawsuits at the court, and as we know, it's not an expeditious uh, process to bring a suit. It gets lumped together, aggregated together into one, as a, what's called a, a proposed class action. And then the third object, which is the behavioral modification, that is, as the name suggests, intended to deter or correct aberrant behavior of some bad actor in the world. And think carefully about building a better product without cutting corners that you know might end up hurting people. And so that's the objective of class actions. But in order for it to move forward as a class action, it's simply proposed. It's an uh, aspirational class action up until it goes through what we went through last week, the certification hearing. And the purpose of that is not to determine who is right and who is wrong. That comes later at trial. But in order to get there as a class action, a judge has to look at it, and there's certain technical tests, criteria that have to be met. Um, is there a, 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 how, how are you defining class members? Who is part of the suit? Is the criteria well-defined? Is it cogent? Um, is there a common issue to be tried? Like, are they all... Uh, were they all screwed over in similar ways or different ways? And uh, is there a representative plaintiff? That's in our case, that's CSASP, our nonprofit, and so on. It's basically technical, right? Um, but that is the defendant's last stand because at that point in time, it gets, if it's certified, it goes from being um, just a regular lawsuit and it gets upgraded into 
what we called in the military force multiplier becomes much more significant to deal with where uh, corporations that have comparable resources even to our provincial government end up capitulating after certification and they want to settle. I'm not saying that that's what will happen here. Um, the uh, same type of corporate anxiety that often happens after a, a proposed class action is certified. When you're dealing with government, it's different because they have an unlimited amount of other people's money mm-hmm. and um, they pay out judgments with your money, right? And so that's a consideration. Sometimes we, th- we think about that. Um, but they don't even want to get it to get certified because as soon as it's certified, <clears throat> we then have what's called uh, discovery. And so in the normal, in the British system, which is what the Canadian legal system is descended from, the discovery process is the point uh, where the parties get to exchange documents, even stuff that they don't want to. And you learn about the strengths and weaknesses of each other's respective cases. And that also includes summoning witnesses where they have to answer questions, produce more documents, and so on. And sometimes they don't want to cooperate, and there's a process for compelling them to. So when we uh, started all of this, um, at one of our hearings, maybe a year and a half ago, we had asked our judge, um, for greater certainty, can you ensure that Dr. Henry, who we've named as a defendant, uh, shows up, um, provided we get certified? And we'd like an order to that effect. And he said, I'm not going to do that. That's highly unusual. Uh, And that's because I don't need to under the civil rules because you named her as a defendant. If you get certified, she's required to testify. And uh, so we're fine with that. Mm -hmm. So everything is basically resting on the certification. So these last five days, we've been in the trenches every day, and it's still not over. So right now, the court is... uh, Uh, breaking for the holidays and we'll be back probably in January, February, most likely February. Mm. And it's apparently unusual that these court hearings would be videotaped. Extremely. Because I I watched, um, you know, some of the videos and it was like the first hour was just the judge talking about how unusual it was to record this. Where would the videos be, be hosted, whether it would be on a third party platform or on YouTube or Vimeo or it was a very big deal. It was a very big deal. And it was like an hour of that, just talking about yeah. YouTube. You have links on your website that lead to, I think I believe it is Vimeo where it's posted now. So people can actually go back and watch all five days. You sat through every single hour of all week? Pretty much, and a oh lot more God. outside of that. Um, That's insane. You, you yeah. need a medal just for that. Like a pat on the back. I'm not going to get anything. I'm not, you know, my mom's got the, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee medal. I'm not going to get it. Because oh. who gives it to you? It's the government, right? You're right. suing the government. Right. You're not going to get any civic honors <laughs> for doing this. Um, yeah, so it's, filming it is, is interesting because um, it, it has never been done before in the history of BC. Like hearings have been filmed, but not trial-level proceedings where the parties contested it. So in other words, it was very rare that they had been filmed, but that was where the parties agreed to it. In this case, the government did not want it filmed. They did Mm. not want anyone seeing it, and we fought tooth and nail with them. Um, That was a surprise. And you won. We won, but it was, as usual, anytime we bring an application or uh, we take a next procedural step in the hearing, we do as much sort of advanced reconnaissance as possible. We think we hit, hit the books. We just determine is there a business case for this? What are the probabilities, right, before you pull the trigger? And uh, I sat down, I did a lot of research, and um, I figured that, yeah, we probably could 
uh, uh, get an order that we could do this. It's what's called, um, in our Constitution, 1867, there's this concept called the open court principle, which is derived from our Constitution. And, but what the, the open court meant in sort of 19th century Victorian England versus what it means today when you have the internet, people working three jobs, and, you know, they can't just go down the, the, the street to the courthouse and sit in there. Uh, and besides, cases didn't affect millions of people back then. You know, it was someone who got hit by a horse or something like they were generally. <laughs> I don't even. I don't think there was even a class action. Uh, yeah. uh, nothing of that sort back then. Yeah, and some jurisdictions still don't have class actions. Like um, Germany, for instance, they, they have no uh, class action statute. Really? Not even common law. Nothing. No. It's because of the lobby. Uh, they don't want that there. Uh, class actions, though, are very powerful tools that. Um, can in effect be seen as sort of part of the political process. It's kind of litigation activism as a last resort after you've exhausted diplomacy, you've exhausted the letter writing, reason, everything. It's mm. your last line of defense. And um, we thought that uh, people being able to witness the process, even if we don't prevail, it's important that they at least see what happened every step of the way. Um, I, I think that it's so important that people know what's going on because people, um, they, everyone is aware of, of how important uh, justice is, you know, it's sort of a Western liberal democracy and how it's sort of this cornerstone of, uh, of our values, uh, but they don't actually witness it. They don't see it. They just know that that institution exists and something important happens there and occasionally they see a headline or someone goes to jail or something but they don't actually see how the process happens. Mm. And so I've had a lot of time to think about that. Um, you know, it does, does having people have access to witness that process improve society? <clears throat> and um, if you'll humor me, I have a metaphor. Mm. And just as I was here waiting for my cab, I was scribbling down some notes. So you'll have to forgive me if uh, I can't even read my own notes, but I will try. Your handwriting is impeccable. You can thank my mother for that. He writes in cursive. <laughs> no one writes in cursive. Yeah. People don't even use handwriting anymore. It's funny because when you're a kid, like you hate the fact that your mom is making you do this. And she's like, and she's just like one day you will understand. And Today's you know, the day. Today's the day. <laughs> okay, what's this metaphor? Okay. So my background, like even though, you know, it's, computer science uh, I'm still um, infected with the philosophy bug and so in philosophy which uh, we have what are called thought experiments you know in like computer science and chemistry and so on, you have real labs you build stuff in philosophy they have thought experiments so this is a thought experiment that maybe your listeners uh, will think about and I don't have an answer to um, this thought experiment but they might so Let's imagine a parallel world, very similar to this one, but where chocolate is an integral part of the villagers' culture. So we'll call it the nation of chocolate land. Chocolate is revered. There are statues of cacao beans. Women weave it in their hair, and children are taught about how important it is in school. They even sing songs about it. Politicians remind their people of how much better off they are than others, other nations that don't cherish chocolate the way they do. Because of the importance of chocolate, something sacrosanct to the people, they have a constitutionally protected open chocolate principle. This concept requires that all the chocolate factories have walls of glass so that the villagers can ensure 
nobody pissed in the chocolate. <laughs> the culture of chocolate land are reminded be- uh, regularly of how much better off they are than the obscure foreign lands that they are told are woefully without chocolate. But without, but despite that, the average citizen of chocolate land has never actually seen a bar of chocolate actually being made, despite hearing about it regularly. Some villagers periodically venture to the glass walls uh, of the factories, but mostly only when high-profile cho- chocolate is being made. They witness the chocolate technicians mixing ingredients, pulling levers, churning knobs, and monitoring gauges. The citizens speak the same language as the talk chocolate technicians, thankfully, but because they've been practicing their craft for centuries, the meaning of the words is different from the villagers. Further, the chocolate technicians know that sometimes villagers are watching, but most of the interesting things the people don't actually see. On top of that, it turns out that the technicians are a bit cliquey. They prefer it that people don't actually understand what they are doing, because if they did, the villagers would be upset to learn that the com- about all the conflicts of interest in their field. To reduce that risk, the chocolate uh, industry lobby set their own quality standards and decide on how to define the good chocolate because they are the only ones who ultimately understand how it is made. Conflicts of interest and the very criteria set out to determine if anything bad uh, has been done is defined by themselves so as to exclude their own activities. In other words, if the villagers don't pay attention and take responsibility for learning at least the basics of the making of chocolate, there is a danger in the field um, that it is part of that is part of the bedrock of chocolate land that it could become entirely self-referential. And so the question is, in this thought experiment, is whether the open chocolate policy, on its own, is adequate. Mm. I apologize if it's a stupid metaphor, but I no, have to scribble that. <laughs> <laughs> great and it's handwritten and cursive and i almost couldn't read it <laughs> and so well, that's that's reframing it like that is very powerful i hope so but um so the the message that i've taken away is um people obviously need to be able to witness the judiciary motion if there's integrity to be maintained but people not having specialized knowledge should never be used to preclude the right to witness that process especially when most lawyers themselves have never actually set foot in a courtroom Mm. and uh, it's ultimately the citizen's responsibility to participate and not the responsibility of either the state or the judiciary to encourage it. Not participating is at the people's own peril. And lastly, with people's participation, they may still benefit from gentle guidance to periodically reduce the mystery of what it is that they are observing. Mm. But it's it's important, right? Yeah. it's 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 You could see why there seems to have been a... Um dumbing down of people yeah. generationally because people don't go looking for it until life gets painful enough where you care yeah yeah exactly and, and that, that's the thing is that like you were all affected by decisions things that go on at the courthouse and i'm not you know infatuated with the legal system i'm, I'm an engineer i mean but we are uh, affected every day by decisions that are made there in more ways than people realize i mean like your MLA or MP has a writing, and in some sense, they're accountable. They're accountable to their constituents, but 
what goes on in court, I mean, they don't create statutes, but they create common law, which has just as much power as a statute. And it's lawyers that convince judges to make rulings. And they're not elected, and their writing consists of a single client. And the repercussions of the decisions can have uh, national implications. And so that's important. If you want to see what goes on in Parliament, you can see what's called Hansar, the, the parliamentary debates, the transcripts. That system is actually pretty well organized. Say what you will about the provincial and federal governments. But you can find out exactly all the debates, everything that went on, every word that was said. But in court, you have to go through quite a few loopholes. And it was with that in mind that I was thinking, you know, it's, maybe it's time that this institution grew up a little bit. And um, so we brought the application when we were successful in that. But I think it, it, the important thing is that even if we fail at this point, if we don't get certified or we do get certified and we lose at trial, we've already improved Canada. And that's important. That's what we were setting out to do was to improve things. Is there a concern that all of this effort will fail because of judges being bought and sold. That's where my head goes. Maybe I'm just a crazy guy. I don't know. We get asked that all the time, you know, are the judges bought and paid for? And, and um, I'm optimistic. I, I can't, uh, I haven't personally seen any anything uh, shady go on. Um, but if hypothetically that was the case, wouldn't the whole world be able to witness everything that went on in those hearings help mitigate that? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it make the political cost of monkey business that went on behind the scenes after all the submissions had been made and that hearing was over in the months that followed waiting for the judgment, wouldn't it make the political cost um, grave? Mm -hmm. It's amazing that we can go back and watch it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm excited to watch the entire thing. I've skipped ahead and tried to you know get a vibe for it because um, it's, you know, five days of and yeah. each video is, you know, hours long, I don't know, four or five hours. Like it's, they're, yeah. they're full days. Yeah. And I apologize that, you know, the, the videos, like, you know, it's on Vimeo, but we had to fight tooth and nail just to come to an agreement on which platform we can host us hosted on. And they were trying to micromanage the whole process. Like, you can't have your logo on there. You can't have any links on there. You don't even mention, you know, CSAS. They didn't like the URL originally. Like, so I had to make a decision. Do we, you know, indulge in... Uh, uh, um, and we did. We gave them a number of indulgences and concessions and so on because it was more important that we just get it online and people can watch it, right? Like they, 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 were, they didn't even want to host it on the provincial website. No, no. And, that, and the judge it's, kind of, he, 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 he didn't quite give them shit about that. But you'll see in, in, in the footage that, um, you know, it's like you didn't offer, offer to give us your hosting, right? And so we've got to host it. On, on, <coughs> originally, we were going to do it on YouTube because there were no uh, bandwidth restrictions. But Vimeo only supports, I think, two terabytes uh, a month. And for your listeners, that means 2,000 gigabytes or, or how much data you can move through a pipe. And I think the the whole footage, you know, back the napkin calculation just for that week is going to be 40 gigabytes. And so that's just one person watching. I, I did the math and you're looking at around, you know, 100 people will be able to watch the full hearing before it runs out of bandwidth, right? And we had warned them of this in advance and everything. But uh, Only 100 people? Yeah, that, be able to watch the entire thing. Yeah, now so Vimeo's terms of service is discretionary on whether they pull the plug when you run out of bandwidth, um, and we're going to try and work with them to solve that problem. But I mean, these are problems that we hadn't anticipated well in advance. And so I, on, it, on YouTube, you put something up there, an yeah, infinite number of people. Exactly, see it. exactly. On Vimeo, only a hundred people. Yeah, that they don't even know what bandwidth is. Honestly, like I tried oh explaining God. the stuff, and like I, you know, I went to. We started this to to 
do a class action, right? And I, I'm not trying to teach them about computer science or engineering or load balancers and all that. Like that's just, it's beyond the scope of our mandate. But I was being lectured uh, by these people who have no background whatsoever in technology or anything like that. And um, I, I think what was really going on was there was pressure perhaps from their client. Um, to try to bury it as much as they could. That and also they were bitter that they had lost the application and um, they were, you know, trying to drag their heels, but also be able to go back to their client and say, which is Dr. Henry and the AG, um, and say, uh, well, we managed to make, get some concessions out of them. Mm. Fine. There's no logo on there. We don't, we don't care if there's no CSAS logo. Everyone knows who brought the application, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't notice that after five days of watching the footage, um, you know, it, it, my pointing that out probably isn't going to help. But so, I mean, everything is there. People can watch it and come to their own conclusions. And it's still not over yet. And each day that it goes on for, um, we have to send them a copy of the footage. They review it. Uh, we have to pixelate, you know, their faces and everything. And um, they're worried about, you know, their personal safety and so on. I mean, like, no one from our organization has threatened them, but there are some unhinged people out there. You know, they've lost everything. They've lost loved ones. There's members of their family that have, have taken their own lives. And I understand that there are people who are upset. Um, and you know, these lawyers, they're doing their job. Um, it, people may not respect that, but I do. You know, like I, uh, I understand that um, they're in a difficult situation and, it may well be the case that they were advising the AG uh, two years ago that this is all illegal and they were writing memos and now they're the mop-up crew. I don't know that. I'm speculating. but uh, You might get to know that. I might. I might, right? Yes. We, we, right. Yeah, I mean, that'll probably be privileged, <laughs> but it would not surprise me at all. I mean, we've seen that happen recently with the chief of defense staff for, uh, the, uh, for the military. Uh, he was recently quoted as saying that they, they actually had received a legal opinion um, from one of their lawyers that uh, the injection mandates for the military might be illegal. And his position was that, well, we can't let that get in the way of rolling out this policy. Wow. Wow. And so that that's in an institution that is the most restri restrictive in terms of civil liberties, right, to the soldiers. So if that was happening in the military, there's a good chance it was happening in other institutions. In public, uh, yeah. Institutions, yeah. Interesting. So, so to um, give us a vibe of... What transpired this past week? Can you give me uh, sort of a Coles Notes version and how you feel about it? Right. So I think uh, um, it went well. Uh, Polina, who's our, our primary counsel, um, she's a very brave woman. You know, she's got all these. They don't. They're not used to going in a courtroom filled with people. So um, how do you how do you find her? By the way. Oh, we've known each other for years. Um, I think I, I met her through. Uh, my patent attorneys, actually. So you go, hey, uh, let's go for lunch. I have a question for you. Yeah, Will yeah, Will you yeah. be the, yeah. the lawyer? <laughs> she knows I'm a shit disturber. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much she's learned. It's been drinking out of a fire uh, hydrant for her because, um, yeah, but she's realized that she really enjoys this area of law. I mean, she was doing personal injury and, and uh, wills and estates and other areas. And um, now she's learning constitutional and administrative law. And it's... Uh, she's wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to go with someone who already knew all that type of law? Absolutely. Or if is they, it better to go with someone you know and trust? Like, it's, uh, it, it, how do you pick who you... It's a big deal, right? How do you pick the lawyer? Yeah, it, unfortunately, they're... they're um, 
was a more fundamental problem. So just as there's rules that prevent you from bringing like a lawsuit too late, like beyond two years statute of limitations, there's also uh, other filtration systems that weed out lawsuits before they get to the courthouse. And one of those is a, sort of a cultural flaw or defect. It's the vanity uh, within the bar. And so a lot of lawyers who might have had the expertise, the technical knowledge to bring such a claim were concerned about professional repercussions, what their peers might have thought about them, and so on. Right. Uh, you can't underestimate the role that vanity plays in the legal profession. Like, you, you mm. have no idea. It's not, unlike anything else, a any other field that I've dealt with. It's insane. And that for that reason, <laughs> you know, uh, I have a lot of people in, in uh, my professional network just from the work I do outside of this. And so, I, you know, you have to interview people, and I, I went through quite a few uh, interviews and you do sort of a soul biopsy and you figure out what mm. makes them tick and I thought that Polina was the right choice she has a very difficult job to do I mean it's a David versus Goliath scenario the, the crown has um, they have a 60 billion dollar budget for the Ministry of Justice and mm. we have a shoestring budget it's we're entirely funded by donors I don't take a salary none of the team does but I think that also helps us. That also works in our favor because the judge and everyone is looking at this. And, well, it's obviously, they have the public support. I mean, you know, like everyone can see thousands of people donating, words of, uh, of support and so on. And plus the courtroom is packed. I mean, there's no way to explain that yeah. other than they support what you're doing, right? A lot of people uh, have mental breakdowns there in the gallery. Like, unfortunately, we had nurses have breakdowns just listening to the government and uh, running out in tears and so on. But you just have to keep your game face and keep going. You know, mm -hmm. It's a, it's a high-stress environment, but panicking and having a mental breakdown, uh, at least I can't. I can't afford to do that, right? We yeah. have to get through this. Yeah. Um, so you've got this uh, this woman that you knew. Yeah. You say, hey, by the way, would you be the lawyer and go up against the king, yeah. Bonnie Henry? She says yes. Um, she's got a work cut out for her. You've now gone through five full days yeah. Um, you're breaking till February. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get back to what, what happened in those five days. If right. We can. So the first day, um, well, I, as you, the very first thing that happened was there's some what's called procedural wrangling where they're, they're fighting over, um, you know, the, the minutia in the filming. And that order had already been granted, I don't know, maybe two months ago or something like that. And um, those details were supposed to have already been worked out. And... Um, Every time we thought we had come to an agreement with the Crown, they would surprise us, like, at the 11th hour, that, no, actually, we're not okay with this. And then they would change what would make them happy. And so we kept humoring them. And it was pissing off the judge, right? And I'm like, I'm just thinking, you know, we shouldn't waste time uh, dealing with this in court. Like, the children should figure this out outside and go to dad after, once they've come to an agreement. And so mm -hmm. that, that was uh, something we ended up doing. Um, but time is, is precious in court. So we had those five days. And so we started off with that. And then um, uh, our judge, who's obviously quite cognizant of the world is watching, did something that's very unusual for judges. And he explained what's going to happen, what will and will not be decided at that hearing, uh, a bit about how class actions work. He used a, a metaphor. It was funny because he actually used a very similar one to one that I've used before about the defective products. And his idea was a toaster that people buy. And, mm. you know, and he's explaining it to people, right? And you have to remember that uh, our judge, that's actually his job outside of being a judge, is he's a professor of, of civil procedures, mm. uh, I think UBC, where I went to school. And so 
he's used to explaining things to people who aren't familiar with the subject. And I think yeah. he enjoys it. He's, this is, it's a, it's, it's work He's for like, him. Finally, I'm on TV. Yeah, I, I mean, like most people have no idea what judges really do for a living. And so the world is watching what he does and, and the role he plays in our society. It's an important uh, function. And, um, and I really like the judge, by the way. From what I watched, like I liked his vibe. Justice Greer, yeah. yeah. He seems, uh, uh, you know, reasonable. He's, uh, he obviously humored us with the, the filming application. In, in his mind, uh, and he said this, it's experimental. It's highly unusual. And you have to remember that um, the legal system is very, very, very conservative. Like, it, it, you know, in my field, it's considered laudatory to come up with a disruptive technology, right? In their field, you don't, you're not expected to break something like that's considered bad. That's a taboo. Like they mm. won't even change like the font they use in, in their, their letterhead for fear of being, you know, sanctioned for professional misconduct right. or something. Right. Like it, <laughs> so they're not innovators. They're not shit disturbers. Yeah. It's not considered good to, to uh, push the envelope. Change anything. Change anything. The more old school, the better. Exactly. Surprised they got rid of those those wigs that they used to wear. Exactly, you know, yeah. like in their mind, their license is worth millions, and they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to disrupt anything. But I'm not a member of the bar, and I don't give a shit. So I can mm. do what I like within certain parameters, larger parameters than than what they can do. And um, it's so so far, it's been working well. You know. So let's just can you jump to the end? Yeah. So so and tell me. Uh, for after he gave, gave his spiel on how class actions work, um, we went on to, to explain uh, why we brought our suit, a little bit about our grievance, um, how we've divided up the class members. This is over the span of several days. <clears throat> we've got, um, so basically everyone over the age of 18 in BC is part of the class. And then we have three subclasses as well that deal with uh, people who were denied access to religious gatherings, people who... Um, uh, weren't able to get the shot and it had repercussions for them. And there was another category as well. I'm afraid it's lost my, my, uh, my memory, but um, we can find that online. And so it's over five, 5.1 or 5.2 million people that provided we get certified become plaintiffs. So you will be part of the suit. And I was actually thinking maybe we should come up with button pins or something that says I'm suing Bonnie or something. If no, I'm automatically a part of it. If you get served, exactly. And so BC, some jurisdictions are not what's called automatic opt-in jurisdiction. So opt-in, it means that um, when a class action is certified, if you're part of the class, you don't need to take any, as we've defined it, you don't need to take any positive step to be part of it. You don't need to just go and sign a form or click a button or send someone some money or make a phone call or anything, email, nothing. You're automatically part of it. Mm. And it's our responsibility to notify everybody uh, of important things that happen uh, after that. Mm. And the ultimate goal is to hold people accountable, is to make sure there's nothing like this ever happens again. Yeah, that's What's the, the main thing. That's, right. the, that's the main thing is accountability. We don't want to ever see this happen again. It's not so much about the money. Right, because where does that money come from? That this is a, a problem in the design of government is that, you know, who indemnifies government? It's the people who are asking for accountability. So, in a, in a sense, you know, asking for money is never really going to solve the problem. It's really about um, the declaration. We want a judicial declaration from the court, which is what we're asking our judge for, that the orders, the public health orders, mainly the one that declared the emergency 
was ultra vires, which means outside of the scope of the power of that decision maker. Um, and that's important because, you know, you can attack each one of these different public health orders on its own, but really they're all predicated on that underlying foundation of a declaration of an emergency. And so we want to, to hit it below the waterline, so mm-hmm. to speak. And that's, that to me is the only rational place to begin your attack because you have finite resources um you've got a limited amount of time it doesn't make sense to because any time like for example there have been successful challenges in the states and uh, people are always uh, telling me about them but the problem is, is that they're mostly technical victories in that they're not saying the court isn't saying there wasn't an emergency they're just saying that this particular decision maker didn't have the authority to make the decision that they made and so the problem with that is that the next time the government just goes in the legislature and they change the person that or they change the rules so that they can they can have that. But the decisions always have to be reasonable, right? And so if you're challenging the underlying declaration of emergency that there was no emergency, um, then even if they change the laws to say someone does have the authority to declare an emergency, it still has to be reasonable, right? Mm. So that's what we're attacking. If uh, this goes through, and this means that. Bonnie Henry will have to testify or be exam- cross-examined or however, yeah. whatever it's called. Is that on? Is that going to be on film too? Does she get pulled into a private room and do you get to go in there and watch it happen? I'll, I'll be there for yeah. sure. Um, regarding filming, as things are right now, by default, that's not done. Uh, there is, however, a transcript of that. And so she wouldn't have to, I don't know, maybe I'll watch too many movies. She wouldn't have to take the stand? She and, has like, to take the stand. Okay. So, it, so there's... Typically, examinations for discovery, what they call a deposition in the States, um, they either happen out of court or or in court. Usually, they're out of court. So they could be at a law firm or some other venue that that, um, Mm. provides those kinds of facilities. It's a room, and there's... But did you put, like, a hot lamp in your face, right? No, it's not. not like the the desk? (laughs) Come on, man. They... um, (laughs) It's not exactly going to be, like, you know, an amicable fireside chat but it's also not going to be like you know a seven hour flagellation of that's too bad but you know like the the questions that we ask her have to be within the scope of what we've pled what we've laid laid out in our lawsuit which is quite broad and so we're going to have all kinds of questions for her and i can't possibly uh conceive of all of them all the areas uh, of uh, interest to the general public that may pertain to our suit and so it's critical that um we have the opportunity for public input into that. And so we'll come up with a process if we get certified that everyone can participate, everyone can submit questions, everyone can provide tips. Um, it's all, we'll basically have sort of like a, a, an FUQ, a frequently unanswered question session where people can find some way of, of, of uh, whatever specific thing that has bothered them. People want to know about the hot sauce know about the hot and sauce, the shoes the shoes the book the, and book, the winery whatever <laughs> it is this will be their opportunity and so we started out with two goals one of them was uh, answers and the second one was accountability and accountability if we're, we're successful at trial that's determined by our judge but answers are something that we get or is within our reach if we get certified because we get discovery so it's like Every other province, for example, has hired back unvaccinated nurses, and only BC hasn't. Yeah. If you had to speculate, why is BC hanging on? Is it ego? Is it some uh, larger nefarious plan? Like, why wouldn't BC just say, okay, guess what? The rest of the country is like hiring everyone back. 
we have a nurse uh, shortage. We have a health crisis going on. Like, okay, welcome back, people. Like, let's get let's get the party started again. Let's take care of people. I'm not the most intelligent guy in the world, but this seems so stupid and ridiculous. So, does it have to do with money? Is it ego? Someone above them pulling the strings? Like, I could go all sorts of crazy places with my conspiracy loving mind. I don't know. What do you What do you think? You're, I mean, you're front row to this stuff. You know, it's hard to say what goes on in cabinet because it's, it's uh, as I like to joke, it's kind of like Vegas. What goes on in Vegas stays there. Mm. It's the same thing with cabinet. You don't get to see the minutes of their meetings until, um, you know, sometimes it's decades after um, um, they were made. So it's probably a combination of a bunch of things. Yes, ego probably plays a role. Um, I think there were money as well. When you think about it, there's approximately, I think, 10,000 nurses that were laid off across the country. And there was a staffing uh, shortage before all of this. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So this obviously didn't help. And um, we have a huge number of nurses that are supporters of us. Like, um, we were lobbied by, I think, three or 5,000 nurses, actually, just here in BC, uh, to do something. And um, that they actually showed up last week in court in the gallery, and they're in, they're wearing their scrubs, you know, wow. because they've been waiting for this two years, right? And we've had many hearings before this, but this is the big one that they've been waiting for. So I don't to answer your question. I don't know um, what's going on, but I suspect that if they do hire them back, they're going to not announce it uh, publicly. It'll be quietly and through a memo or something like so that. So ego. Yeah. Well, it, it, you remember it's it. Government is very much, it takes its cue from corporate uh, public relations as well, where if you admit mistakes, it could be expensive, mm. right? And government's not really any different in that respect. Mm. But they've been trying to make changes to how healthcare workers are governed for a long time, even before our current uh, um, attorney general, even before the, his predecessor as well, Horgan. There's been efforts to... Um, have greater control in, in how what type of activities they can do, how they're supervised and so on. The like, for example, B36, which uh, bill 36, that people have been uh, complaining about a lot lately, that idea of consolidating the colleges under greater control under the ministry, um, that has been on the drawing board a long time. Like even before this, this government mm. was, was in office. <laughs> and um, the idea that people will be able to, look up their healthcare providers, you know, vaccination status, for example, and choose, okay, well, I don't want to go to that dentist because he doesn't have all 20 jabs. Yeah. This is what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the theory was, was that, and, um, you, you know, people were obviously very concerned about it, but they, the idea was that people needed to, all these healthcare workers needed to get the shot or they'd lose their job. And that's not, I'm not going to rule out that that's, not the long-term goal, but that specific piece of legislation, which has now been granted royal assent, it's law now, it, um, it doesn't require that. What it does require is that if the government mandates it, then the colleges have to change their bylaws so that the members have to have the shot. And um, But that's only if the government, through an enactment, uh, mandates it so through you know they'd have to declare perhaps another emergency in other in order to justify it or something of that sort it'd have to be pretty significant uh, and i'm not going to rule out that they they won't try that but they have to take that step before um 
the healthcare workers are, are mandated under the bylaws of the college. Or alternatively, the colleges themselves can mandate it without the authority of parliament, but they have to put that in their bylaws on their own. Without, mm-hmm. and, and that's actually the preferred way that the government would like to see it rolled out. It keeps that, them like out exactly, of Exactly, wipe yeah. their hands clean of it. It's the colleges doing their own thing. But the colleges are reluctant to do it because it's politically sensitive. You know, like you're going to start a riot in you know, the College of Naturopaths is a good example, and there are others as well, where there's a huge number of the members that don't have the shot, aren't interested in getting it, and will leave. You know, and if they leave, that's also, um, you know, the members of these colleges pay membership dues. <laughs> mm. right? So it's a large source of revenue. They that lose membership up. dues, yeah. that goes to Alberta or wherever. Yeah, exactly. Interesting to think about that. Yeah, and they can get sued too, right? Mm. That's, that's the thing is when a college makes a decision like, to terminate someone's license, they're still subject to someone potentially bringing what's called a petition for under the Judicial Review Procedures Act in the BC Supreme Court to determine whether or not that decision was justified. And this happens all the time. You know, someone sometimes it's, people lose their license for good reason. You know, they killed somebody, but other times they're just being harassed for suggesting people make some dietary changes. You know, to their <laughs> life. It is so. I mean, like a friend yeah. of mine is a good doctor. He he. Uh, told me a while ago and he was only half joking he's like you know kip i can't even joke about an apple a day keeps the doctor away without getting a letter a form letter from the college no saying stay away from (laughs) this is quackery you know so you know i feel bad for them um but ultimately the courts have final say on whether or not they can actually pull someone's license you're you're a hero for a lot of people Ten thousand nurses hurting and suffering who've been ignored treated like crap yeah and like waiting for someone to stick up for them and it there should be like a huge uprising of people that i just feel like it you're one man who seemed to have orchestrated this and thank god you did um but that's a lot for one guy to put together well first off you know it's an honor and a privilege to be given this responsibility and one i take very seriously but it's also important that people know that it's not just me like i may be the public face of the organization uh, but we've got a team behind me that does all kinds of administrative tasks. Like I can't possibly answer the phones and clear out the inboxes and, you know, keep the books up to date and all, all these things, sending out documents and so on. Like we, there's a lot of people behind me that keep the machinery rolling because I would sim- quite simply burn out, you know, mm-hmm. like um, we've got people that thank every single one of our donors personally that answer the questions and, and make referrals to specific lawyers if they have, you know, particular types of inquiries. And, um, it, it, you know, like if you want to, I, I didn't care about being famous, but if that really is your goal, all you have to do is solve a problem for a large number of people and they'll put you on that pedestal, mm. <laughs> you know, and mm. that's what's happened is it's sad that um, there were so few people that uh, were able to or willing to come forward to do something about it but there's also a cost right if you do something like this um you're also in the crosshairs of the government and they'll go after everything they possibly can to try and discredit uh the uh campaign i mean they're already doing it sort of i would say tilting at windmills they're not really they don't have anything substantive but you know anything that they can do to try and derail this they will do and part of that is they go after the representative plaintiff and that's quite common in glass actions because there's so much at stake and there's an old saying in, in law that if you have the facts pound on the facts if you have the law pound on the law and if you have neither pound on the table 
And mm. as you watch that certification hearing, you'll see a lot of pounding on the table on the part of the, the government. And they'll do anything they possibly can to go after, you know, uh, my personal life, my uh, private, uh, my, my, my business life, anything they can. And that's a risk that you, um, you, uh, you just roll with it. You know, we don't reduce ourselves down to meet their levels. Like, for example, we get inquiries all the time from people who have all kinds of salacious personal details, whether it's about Crown Council or, um, you know, the defendants themselves, Dr. Henry, and, and I just tell them we're not sinking to that level. Like, I've had people call me saying, we're outside of the Solicitor General's house. Do you want us to start a riot? I said, no, don't do that. There's nothing you can do that would help the government more than uh, declaring us all terrorists and giving themselves more extraordinary executive power. And um, you're going to derail all this. So who would love to hear some of the salacious details of Sean Henry's (laughs) personal life? Why not? Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) we get to discovery, right? you know, but... um, I mean, if you get certified, you'll have to like, uh, you'll probably have to go into a a dark cave somewhere and hide out. Yeah, I mean, the important thing is is that you just don't want to reduce yourself down to meet their level, Mm -hmm. you know, like we're, we can do better than our government. And uh, if we can't, then we don't have any right to criticize it. So, um you know, even in war, there there are uh, rules of engagement, and it's the same here uh, as well. I understand that the Crown Council, they have a difficult job, and I also understand that they don't respect uh, um, our followers. And uh, But if you're in their shoes, from their perspective, they think the government did the right thing. They think that it was moral, it was just, they had to take certain measures in order to protect uh, grandma and the sick and elderly. Do they really sick. think that though? You've met a lot of these people, I'm sure. Like you know, they 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 think that they were trying to protect uh, the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. and uh, they ended up uh, causing a ridiculous amount of harm to the very people that they were trying to protect. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, if we get to discovery, it will be interesting just to watch um, Crown Council. It'll be it'll be educational for them to finally draw their attention to what they've been missing, mm-hmm. uh, the evidence over the last few years. Because if they really believe they did the right thing, this may be the first time that they actually have, they're forced to digest the reality of the things that they've caused, that the hurt and the pain and the... Yes, and that's why we, we chose litigation is because it's the only way to compel... Um, a conversation that with our government that has not had the opportunity to ha- happen yet on its own. Hmm. And the only way is through the civil discovery process. I'm not aware. I mean, there's, there's other ways people can kidnap people, you know, but we don't do that, right? We have the courts, and as long as that system hasn't failed us, we should not uh, um, think about extreme or uh, absurd ideas. You know, like I have to deal with people all the time who are unhinged and they've, They've, their life has been a living hell for the last two years, and I have to counsel them. Like, you have to be patient with this process. It's not an overnight process, but your government is not enjoying this at all. So mm. the living hell that you've been going through for the last two years, just think about the political political cost to these people if we prevail. And we've spent the last five days discovering discussing that at length. And um, In the old days, Game of Thrones, just watch an episode of Game of Thrones. 
Yeah, I mean, the this days is, they get you just cut your head off. You complain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. and it's kind of in a way, it's it's the ultimate reality TV show for people who want to watch it. But um, it's it. I think it makes people better citizens when they know what's going mm-hmm. on there. We also get a preview to um, what the government's going to be arguing at trial, and um, I think their position is going to be because they, they're not. There's no not a chance in hell that they're going to be able to. to uh, justify the PCR test today. I think that the science is overwhelmingly clear that the test does not work. And um, I think that their their line of defense is going to be that that was the best decision we reasonably could have made based on the information that we had at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think even that's going to stand up, though. Come on. Even the creator of the PCR test has come out and said certain things that would... Uh well, and, and we'll find out what they've got because, I mean, they claimed actually at the uh, last week, I think it was on Thursday or Friday, that uh, they have a warehouse of documents that they're going to have to produce if we get to discovery. And the court should be mindful of that. Another reason not to certify us. And I was thinking to myself, you know, my, my God, if, if they have a warehouse of evidence, then uh, I mean, that's a good problem for the government to have, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't think that they do. They probably have a warehouse of denied uh, uh, exemptions that people submitted. Right. <laughs> Beyond that, I don't. I don't know about uh, oh much in the way of scientific evidence. But their 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 argument. I mean, they've got several. Some of them are more technical, but the the main one is that look, you can't possibly certify us because if you did, just imagine the size of the problem that they're asking uh, you to deal with, right? It's just it's just too big. It's too big for it even to be a class action. The court isn't equipped to deal with it. There could be millions of pages of documents produced. And basically what they're saying is that if the government burns down a village or just one house, it can be held accountable potentially. But if it burns down an entire village, uh, it exceeds the capacity of the court's machinery to be engaged because it's just yeah. too big and so but think about the the implica- implication of that that means that the next time the government creates a problem where there could be potential liability all they need to do is just um uh, aggravate the problem further make it larger so large that uh the oh, court we, said can't, we can't deal we can't deal with this <laughs> you know uh, i i was born in white rock and uh there's uh, a native reserve that's that's uh, um just tangential to the city and they've had a boiler boiling water advisory for as long as I can remember. And they might still have it. And I, it, that's a situation where if you had a class action there, you might have a few thousand class members. But if the government wanted to not deal with that, all they had to do was just put lead in the drinking water of all British Columbia and say, look, the problem is too big uh, f- for us to be held accountable. And I don't think that's a, a, a good defense. I think that's a lousy argument and can um, create a really catastrophic uh, precedent for the way um, they do business. And I hope wow. that our judge is, is sympathetic to that. If you don't get certified, I guess then you go to uh, the appeal process. If you do get certified, th- then your opponent goes to the appeal process. Correct. So that's the next drawn out thing. <laughs> Basically, either way, it's most likely going to go to the court of appeal. It, again, it depends on, on um, how he rules. But it's quite possible that, and the appeal process is by no means uh, fast. So if we we get certified and uh, they appeal it, um, the fact that they've appealed it doesn't 
by default stop the civil discovery process or anything until there's an order that says otherwise. It's still oh, so pers- things to keep going. Things will still continue. Okay. Right. So then you got two things happening at once, the appeal process and the continuing with yeah. the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that. That's, that's, that's encouraging. That's is okay. encouraging. Now, um, even if we get certified, if, if say our, our judge thinks that, you know, they're partially right. It is what you're asking the court to adjudicate on is just too large. Um, he could potentially um, trim the fat. He could cut out uh, certain class members. He could do any number of things. And he's asked us for suggestions, if that's necessary, uh, for him to do that um, in order to certify it. And that's not unusual in class proceedings at certification for compromises to be made in order to get it through, to get mm. it certified. So an example, would that be like cutting out a certain part of the population? Or it, it could. It could. Like old people? Potentially, yeah. or just clarifying the language of what specifically defines a member of a class. Because not necessarily everyone, like if you've got a class, for instance, of people, um, like the example our judge used was the toaster, right? The defective toaster. You've got all these people that bought the toaster. The toaster explodes. Some people, only thing that they lost was the toaster. For other people, it burnt down their house. Other people, they lost an arm. Other people, they've got mental harm and they've lost their job. Any number of things. Hurt my feelings. Exactly. If you define the class as everyone who bought the toaster, you're grouping together people that might have potentially very different claims, right? Mm. So that could be a problem. <clears throat> so, so you might narrow it down to people who had like, um, couldn't visit dying loved ones. Yeah. Or specific groups. And then there'd be other people who were fired. Yeah. Like the, nurses. So like, th- th- I don't, bel- I'm not sure if there's ever been, uh, a class action that sought charter damages for, uh, in response to, uh, the government's policies in respect to, to an alleged pandemic. And that's novel. And so our judge, is, is, that's not lost on him. He's quite aware of that. But there's also nothing in like the Class Proceedings Act that says that we can't do this. So they're saying that, oh, it's just too large. But the Class Proceedings Act, I believe, says you need at least a minimum of two members of the class. It doesn't, and it has to be finite. But finite doesn't mean um, maximum 300,000. It just means a number, right? So there's not an infinite number of people in BC, but it's very it. They're they're they know um, the significance of what we're doing because there's potentially billions of dollars at stake. And remember, kid, that if there was no emergency here, there wasn't anywhere, right? So that's what's at stake. Interesting, because you you didn't go federal because all this stuff has to go through provincial. Yeah, so in, uh, in our, our uh, in our constitution uh, section ninety two, I forgot, but basically, um, carry the one. Yeah, you know it's whatever. <laughs> the powers uh, uh, for to uh, for healthcare are delegated to the provinces. So education and so on. Certain things in our constitution are at the federal level, like uh, issuing coinage, uh, international relations, military, uh, certain types of taxes, those are at federal level. And so the Constitution delegates and divides up authority, who's responsible for what. Same thing in the state, same thing in the UK, same thing where everywhere, basically. You know, like your municipalities have certain powers that uh, uh, the provinces don't and vice versa. And healthcare is one of those things that is, as I said, at the provincial level. And so if you want to challenge... It's just kind of weird. 
because we're all human beings. We all have the same parts, basically. Like whether you live in Alberta or in Ontario, like yeah, we shall be taken care of, kind of the same. But yeah, well, it's crazy. It's a philosophical question, and it's a political and economic one too. But this is just something that the designers of our country came up with in 1867, and Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, um, that hasn't changed. You know, and education as well, like um, that. uh, You know, mandatory. um, primary and secondary. Uh, well, back then there were a lot of batches of bad moonshine going around. Yeah, and uh, yeah. some people got the bad barrels. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it basically this design, the template that we have, comes from England, right? And it's not just unique here. It, I mean, they did this in India as well, I mean, and and uh, in almost everywhere where they set up a system of government, all throughout the Commonwealth, it's it's very similar, right? And so we're looking at sort of the legacy of uh, the British Empire and. The states isn't all that different either. Like I'm, I, I don't know. Uh, I believe uh, you know, like the military obviously is a federal responsibility, and uh, certain types of taxes as well, and, and so on. But um, they, then they also have some other weird things. Like they have got state level uh, um, militaries. You know, they've got the, uh, they have the national guard at a, a federal level, but then they've got state level. Uh, actual militias that aren't citizens militias but they're they're a part of the the state mm-hmm. so it you know these responsibilities are divided up somewhat similarly and there's differences in e- each different country but in canada for whatever reason that's where healthcare is is provincially so if you want to bring a challenge if you don't like a decision uh that was made you can't go to the federal government uh, um, i mean you can't you can name the prime minister and all of his cabinet but it'll just get thrown out on the mm. basis that the court doesn't have jurisdiction so if you win in bc uh, there, that means there wasn't an emergency in any of the provinces. So then the, it's, a, it's the domino effect, and that's how much, like you said, this is how much is on the on the line here. That's exactly it. Is, yeah. is there is, because, you know, laws can be different from one jurisdiction to another, but laws um, in a situation like this are predicated on facts, and facts are determined by science. Does this PCR test work? It wasn't like Alberta had their own PCR test and BC had its its same underlying uh, um, technology. The cycle counts obviously varied from one jurisdiction to another, but I don't think that's going to help them. You know, we mm. I think we know the cycle counts were ridiculously high everywhere, you know. Right. So. Yeah. They're trying everything they can <laughs> to get this thrown out. I mean, like right now they're trying to throw sort of the BC CDC under the bus and saying that that's a separate, you know, if, if there's liability, it's got to be the BC CDC. And, you know, that's separate from Dr. Bonnie Henry. And we showed, you know, in their own affidavits that the BC CDC is part of the provincial government. I mean, like that's not a secret, but they're, they're denying it. And so, you know, if, if that is the case, then they should go and, sue the bccdc if they think that they're liable right but so that's one of the things our judge has to determine is uh um uh, whether or not we need to add the bccdc as a defendant as well but there's no is this has been their tactic for for in all the legal challenges to do with covid has been procedural wrangling technical stuff rather than actually getting to the substantive issue of show us the science Mm -hmm. and they don't want to do that so this judge, pardon me, what's his name again? Justice David Creera. David Creera. Creera. C-R-E. Creera. R-A-R. Justice David Creera. Creerar. Creerar. Yeah. Okay, Creerar. Um, can we send him a bottle of wine for Christmas? Like, what's the, what's the best tactic here? The average citizen, what can we do? Win him over with, uh, do we know if he likes red or white, or what's the deal? 
Maybe you like some nice Japanese whiskey? I don't know. I hope he's enjoying his, <laughs> his holidays, though. It's well-deserved. But, um, yeah, judges have a, a, um, uh, probably not a good idea to send a bottle. After okay. we get our ruling, if we win and everything like that, okay. then, then Celebration do, bottle. do what you want. Yeah, Because, yeah, this, the pressure on him. I came to imagine, I mean, if your mind goes to the wild places I go, the, the, the levels above him and the pressure and the, the money involved, like you said, the billions of dollars yeah. and riding on this guy's decision. I just pray that he's got, um, does the right thing. It does take you know? a lot of moral and intellectual courage to, to deal with this because he knows that if we can't move forward with this, then nobody can. The statute of limitations, the two-year window is is going to come up and no one else is going to be able to bring another claim. Uh, other techniques have been tried with judicial review and so on. And nothing really ha- has uh, come of that. So this is, as you've seen in one of our flyers, this basically is BC's last line of defense. It's our last stand. And um, if we don't prevail, then we've got to be creative and, and think about what to do next. But there's obviously... Like you mean move to Costa Rica? I, I don't th- recommend, you know, people uh, abandon their country. I, I think that, um, I find that the people who do that tend to romanticize the States a lot. But then would you ask, do you Americans flee their country? You know, it, yeah. no, they don't. All right. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> if you if you leave the country, but you're still doing things to support efforts in Canada, then that's good. But if you yeah. just, um, you know, abandon your country, I, I don't think it's a good thing. Yeah, I know. I know. We'll talk about that later. We'll Remember, see what it, happens. It, it's your country too. It's not your government. Your country yeah. has a government, but your government doesn't own a country, right? That's true. I know. I know. I'll, I'll admit, I'm, I'm guilty of having these conversations with my wife. They always start jokey, you know, and then they get less and less jokey. And then suddenly you're like on, you're researching, like, you know, where in Mexico can yeah. I go? Oh, yeah. And, and I can see from the stats, and my team it can see as well from, you know, all the people coming to our, our website that they're... There's a lot of people in Mexico and Costa Rica. I'm like, okay, those are obviously expats, you know, like yeah. who, who else in Mexico would care about politics? You want to know when they can come home, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, like people, this was probably one of the most largest dangerous social experiments that had ever been conducted in BC. And um, there were a lot of upset people. Like we get calls from people who were suicidal or members of their own family had already taken their life. And the one thing that prevented them from, from following through with themselves uh, was knowledge that this campaign was going, it was giving them hope. Oh my God, dude, how do you take that pressure on? Yeah. Well, I mean, like God, I can't take all the calls. We've got people who take the calls, but sometimes people still find my number anyways. And uh, just knowing, yeah, just knowing that. I kind of hope that you're exactly. giving people like... I mean, we've, we've managed to get a lot done. Even if we fail at certification or trial, we've managed to... to um, we've moved what's called the Overton win- window. Like, we basically, the topics that are considered acceptable to discuss, when we started, this was not. This was so... It's called the Overton... Overton window. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's an academic came up with this. But basically, it's... it's there's a set of, of concepts that people are allowed to discuss you know, and every now and then it moves, but not because of the political institutions. They don't really move. It happens from other factors. Um, but politicians, movers and, movers and shakers like you, yeah, well, force my, myself, others as well, lots of other people. I'm obviously not the only one doing everything here, but as that window shifts, um, politicians take note of that. And so one of the things that we've done is we've managed to shift that Overton window 
and that happened um, some time ago. I don't remember which. Uh, uh, we had we obtained a ruling actually when we were before Justice Koval in, in, in a parallel proceeding that we had brought that was more narrow in focus specifically on, on uh, challenging the restrictions on healthcare workers. And that judge had awarded us public interest standing, which is basically the right to be there in court because Dr. Henry was contesting that and saying that we didn't have any right at all to be in court because the nonprofit doesn't have charter rights. Those apply to individual people. But the judge um, uh, thought that, well, because we're advocating and at, putting the best foot forward for our stakeholders, which include healthcare workers, we should be given uh, public interest standing. And uh, his ruling was very reasonable and balanced. He said, you know, we're, we're, we have our shit together, basically, is what he said. And the media took note of that. And almost like overnight, the, the tone of the public discourse changed in BC, where, okay, maybe we're not crackpot, QAnon, mm. conspiracy theorists. Maybe there is something legitimate to be seen here. And uh, that had a profound impact on the the political discourse here in bc so that's another one of the things that we managed to do but someone has to uh sort of be the avant-garde and take that risk you know and uh, change that but once you do succeed in changing that making it more acceptable to discuss these kinds of issues of controversy then you get a lot more talented people coming forward wanting to assist and uh, you know help draft factums and research case law and so on um mm. And uh, that's important. That's really important is changing the, the climate the, for, for intellectual discourse on ideas of controversy. Get a little momentum going. Yeah. People feel more brave to, to jump on. Before we wrap, when this is all said and done, we've listened to you talk now eloquently, very intelligently about all this stuff. We're falling in love with you, man. I mean, the man, the myth, the legend. I've heard your name so many times. Well, we'll see if we succeed. Right? But, but still, either way, the fact that you've orchestrated all this and pulled the team members together, it's not easy. You know, leadership is not everyone's got the, you know, the kahunas to do it. Um, that's probably very controversial to say. Crown Council's <laughs> rolling their eyes right now when they're listening to you, but that's okay. Listen, man. So, like, when this is all said and done, I'm curious like, to, to know the man now. What what is your ultimate what's your ultimate goal in life when this is done? What what's your just a personal thing? We we wish the best for this because and we're all rooting for it. But you as a man, as Kip, I would like to have a vacation. A I vacation, of, of course. I haven't had one in a few years. <laughs> you know, I've been in the trenches a long time. But yeah, I mean, well, my goal though is you know just solve problems the important ones and you can leave the world a little bit better off than when you got into it if all of us do that we could build a paradise on earth in in a single lifetime so would you 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 want to build a paradise we are all have an opportunity to participate in that process i mean i just just, to see where your head's at you're still a young guy jeez i just turned 40 the things you're gonna do i can't even imagine I mean, this is this is kind of put you in the spotlight. If but I survive, remember, it makes it's, a you really... it's a dangerous line of work, you know. <laughs> this gets me really excited about the things that you're going to do. I mean, it's it's an honor to have met you and to, to now know you. Well, that's um, kind. Yeah. I have to survive, though. That's, you have to survive. I can't, can't underscore that. Yeah. How can people donate? I mean, I'm sure you're, you need, like, are you hitting up big rollers, or is it like the average citizen giving you 50 bucks here and there, or are you looking at, uh, I don't know, Chip Wilson's to throw you... A hundred grand here and there. How, how do you how do you we get keep this going? People of that that uh, um, 
tax bracket occasionally donating. And I mean, I can't disclose the names of the anonymous donors, but we have some pretty prominent people across this country that mm-hmm. I think uh, our critics would be very surprised to learn, take an interest in our work. But the, the lion's share of the financial contributions come from rank and file, everyday Canadians, blue collar people and, you know, all walks of life. And for them, they donate what they can. It could be 10 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever. Um, cumulatively, uh, you know, it adds up, but it's still not that much. Like most lawyers, if they, if you had asked them how much it was going to cost in order to do something like this, uh, when we started a few years, they would have said, this is going to be in the millions. Mm-hmm. But that's also because um, they're not used to being carefully supervised, how they're burning through cash. And so I have to manage projects in, in my other hats and uh, make business decisions regularly. So we've we've done everything we can to operate economically. As I said, I don't take a salary and my team doesn't. Um, they're very dedicated to their, their work. But most of the donations come from, from working class people, mm-hmm. you know, in particular people who were adversely affected by all of this. And uh, it's a bit of a disappointment, though, because... Um, it's not like they were the only ones who were affected by this. Even the rich couldn't get on planes, you know, unless you were super rich and you couldn't, uh, you had your own plane, you still ended up landing in another jurisdiction that has these restrictions. You know, you get off the plane and you're putting on a mask again. So everyone was affected by it. And, and sometimes it is a bit disappointing that the, uh, uh, the more affluent members of our society haven't uh, quite pulled their weight to the same extent that the working class people have. But that's a decision everyone makes on their own. And anyone who contributes, um, we welcome it. We put their money to good use. And anyone can take a look at our books at any time. Um, yeah, we operate with a great deal of transparency. And, and there's different ways that um, people can contribute. If you go to our website, thesubani.ca, you can click Donate. And they can use... Uh, actually, we recently added cryptocurrencies. Mm. It's because people had been pestering me. Not not very many people. And so as a sort of social experiment, I was like, okay, let's see what mm. happens if we allow cryptocurrencies. Does it keep more anonymous? Yeah, well, or, in theory. In theory, it's yeah. supposed to. Uh, um, and Because uh, a lot of people, they were pissed off that we were using GoFundMe because there was a controversy about that. And so, But we're not limited to that. I mean, people can donate through whatever they want. They can mm-hmm. use e-transfers. They can send a check. They We don't normally handle cash because it kind of complicates their bookkeeping. Um, but they've got any number of methods and, uh, we try to put every, every nickel to work, weaponizing it. Mm-hmm. And finally, and I'm surprised I didn't ask you this question earlier. Was there something, was there a way that you were especially personally affected that made you want to make such a sacrifice? Like a family member who, I don't know, if I don't, just ultimate motivation for you. I was livid that I couldn't see Dune in theaters. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course. No, I, I was pissed off about that, but no. I, I couldn't I, take my son to Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. No, no, we snuck I, in the I, back, but. Compared yeah. to most people, like, I don't have anything to complain about. There, there, it did impact my work. Like, there were some conferences and tech conferences I couldn't go to. And uh, there were things disrupted in my life, but nowhere near to the extent of, you know, a nurse who's been working at VGH for the last 15 years and got canned because they refused to submit to an experimental medical treatment you know yeah. in my case i work from home uh i can make my hot chocolate write my code i don't have a boss you know yelling at me he's a hot chocolate guy exactly you know there's open <laughs> chocolate principle and, and and so i don't have to worry about the same sort of things that a lot of other people do yeah 
but I was getting tired of people uh, complaining about shit and not doing anything. I'm like, you have to go to the courthouse. It's only, you can have these protests and that that's important. That's an important part of the political process, get people together, get them talking. But that's a forum where people can discuss work that needs to be done. It's not where the work is going to get done. Mm-hmm. And so people had to take it a step further and initiate some sort of a formal process. Mm. That's what we did. You're just a guy doing the right thing. Uh, the whole team is. The yeah. whole team is, and it's it really is, uh, it's a group effort that's important. I'm not just saying that to be a cheese pop, but yeah. actually it is. No, you're right, you're right, it really is. But, but yeah, you're the guy that pulled it all together, and now this organization, what's the name of the organization again, one more time? CSASP, or Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science and Public Policy. Yes. It's quite funny, actually, when you hear it announced in court, you know, when the 10 a.m. and the, the uh, judge walks in and the clerk says, um, Justice calling the matter of Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science and Public Policy versus His Majesty the King and Dr. Bonnie Henry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny to hear, but, you know, it's... Um, uh, the name is not arbitrary. It does uh, um, uh, suggest that uh, we do think that there needs to be a, a greater role of science in the formation of public policy. Just when they announced that, you can almost tell who the good guy and the bad guy is. Well, right? even even our judge pointed out at one point in time that, you know, it's like, you say that you have got your own warehouse of data, Dr. Dr. Henry, but... Um, Maybe they do too, as the name suggests. The Canadians, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a really good name. Yeah, yeah. Well, really like I name. said, we're we're nonpartisan, and like we've got people all across the political spectrum. We've got religious people, blue collar people, anarcho capitalists, the techno libertarians, the feminists, environmentalists, the conservatives. Like everybody, everyone is welcome, and it's because we focus on our mandate, right? Yeah, uh, and we don't uh, uh, um, get lost in the weeds on on, on other topics. Mm-hmm. This has been a real pleasure, man. You're a great dude. And uh, this was a great, great conversation. Thank you for having me. Cheers.